0: Welcome, everyone. This is another edition of On the Barricades. My name is Boyan Stanislavski. Together with me is Maria Cherna, the co-host of the show. Hello, Maria.
1: Hello, hello, Boyan.
0: Hi. So it's our usual setup here, and we're going to go over some news, and we're going to offer you our comments on those uh, news. There's, you know, there's been pile and pile of of very important events and very important developments. Uh, unfortunately. As you probably know, we don't have the resources to be able to actually, you know, do programs every day or every second day in order to actually be able to, you know, uh, comment on each and everything, which does deserve a a, a comment from us. But we're doing our best. And uh, before we actually start with uh, what's on your radar, Maria, I want to uh, to inform our viewers uh, and listeners that we're recording this on the 28th of April. In the morning, and this is an advice that I was given by one of our viewers on YouTube, uh, which I I'd like to thank for. I think it really makes sense because we're actually not going to be releasing that video uh, before uh, before the weekend, so it's gonna be at least twenty four hours, probably even more than that, before the video is actually up. So just for the sake of you know our viewers and our followers and our listeners and readers and everyone you know who likes us, uh, being informed. That's 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 how the that, that's what the arrangement is. Uh, we're recording it today, Thursday, the twenty eighth of April, and we're going to be releasing it uh, tomorrow, the day after tomorrow. So, Maria, let's uh, let's now dive into the news that you thought are the most important and uh, most interesting, perhaps, uh, from your <clears throat> point of view.
1: So, from my point of view, of course, the visit of uh, Prime Minister Mister Chuka. Uh, the one that I told the viewers and I explained, I think, on a couple of occasions that uh, plagiarized his PhD thesis and
0: Romanian and, Prime uh, Minister. The Minister.
1: Romanian pr- uh, Prime Minister, Nicolae Ciuca. So he, along with the um, Ministry of uh, Foreign Affairs, Bogdan Aurescu, and also with the head of the Deputy Chamber. Uh, Mr. Cialacu, the head who is also the head of the Social Democrats here in Romania, uh, they went to Kiev. Now, a little bit of a background. Uh, it was last year that uh, the Social Democrats and the Liberals came together to form a very interesting coalition, an oxymoron ideologically, because you have the social democrats and the liberals, and apparently they should be on opposite sides, and they should be um, the extremes uh, in terms of ideological options, but they formed a coalition. Now, there was a lot of speculation, nevertheless, they shared uh, the ministries, some of them went to the social democrats, some of them were kept by the liberals. Union Save Romania, that is the most libertarian and also progressive uh, in terms of cultural values. But libertarian in terms of economics was kicked out of power and now the new alliance is formed by the social democrats and the national liberals. And they went together to Kiev, uh, or Kyiv as it's said now, um, and they met, of course, with President Volodymyr uh, Zelensky, and they discussed a couple of things. What is interesting to note here is that the Social Democrats and Mr. Cholaku to his credit, insisted on the well-being of the Romanian community, which is a very large one in Ukraine. In in the northern part of our country, we have a couple of districts and regions that are dominated ethnically by Romanians. And um, there were were problems, of course, because uh, when the Ukrainian authorities decided to ban... Uh, all national languages except Ukrainian. Of course, Romania was also affected by this, and the Romanian uh, minority was affected by this. And to his credit, Mr. Chilaku insisted insisted on uh, the Romanians being treated um, Uh, with dignity in Ukraine, and also he insisted on reconstruction and on Romania providing some sort of security uh, uh, guarantee for Ukraine. And uh, Nicolae Čuka, since he's an army general, uh, he insisted on Romanians offering help militarily and um, all sorts of uh, military support. That was basically how the press summed up their conversation and their uh, their meeting. I think this is important because um, Romania is a very good student or a very obedient uh, uh, state. In terms of uh, uh, its status in the NATO alliance, uh, we are among the very few countries that even before the war started, paid 2% of the GDP for military equipment and for military spending, we were willing to give the money. children
0: are malnourished. Just yes,
1: this, yes. This we cool. have in Romania 38%. This is the official data um, from surveys conducted at the level of European Union that prove that 38% of Romania's children are living in poverty. And uh, we have almost 200,000 children who are malnourished. But we bought military equipment and we increased the military spending in the last 10 years, according to a statistic conducted and presented by Radio Free Europe, 154%. So we are among the top three NATO members. Yes, it is unbelievable, and at the same time, unfortunately, this war, this war, gave those who were in favor of such reckless uh, military spending a uh, reason to say that they were right all along, and now you see what happens. Well, um, I will give my assessment uh, later because I do not agree with this idea that the. Um, the increased military spending is offering guarantees. Guarantees against what? I mean, uh, once the war starts, there is no guarantee that innocent lives won't be <clears throat> lost. So, guarantee... Well, on the contrary,
0: there is, there is the guarantee that they will be lost.
1: Yes, yes. And since we started, let me say now that uh, I think That in a very, very perverse way, and I've been thinking about this ever since I started teaching, I told you it was an accident. I had to feel uh, for somebody who left suddenly and I had to to teach in a security master's uh, program. And that happened quite a while ago. I think it was 2016, 2000. No, it was 2015 when I started teaching there. And ever since, I've been thinking that in in a very, very perverse way, the security apparatus is the guarantee for insecurity in a very strange way. It, It is like, you know, a firefighter who starts fires to justify its existence, it's very bizarre how actually the security apparatus, there is a tipping point. If you reach that from a certain point, the security apparatus, meaning secret services, meaning the army, all that becomes a liability and it becomes a threat. It is very, very bizarre how those things uh, unfold actually. Uh, and, because, you know, and what is most troubling here is the mindset. Mm. It doesn't matter how many weapons you have or how many people, is the mindset. The idea that you, you are constantly being threatened, that you are paranoid all the time, that oh, you yeah. are scared of your neighbor. It is the mindset that creates the perfect opportunity for insecurity.
0: No, oh, tell me about yeah, it. You know, I I live in Poland. So you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> tell me about like wrecking the public collective mindset to the extent that everybody fears everyone including their neighbors or you know like random Russians, Russian agents waiting behind every corner to you know uh harm put Poland or Polish citizens in harm's way and stuff like that. So yeah, or
1: of our colleague of our dear colleague Vladimir Mitev that uh, I think conducted the only interview with a wonderful personality, Galtung is his name uh, and he formed what I believe to be one of the first and one of the most uh, prominent institutes for peace. And this person said, look, The problem is that we in security studies, we are preparing all the time for war, and our best strategy to fight war is more war. We don't create the necessary mindset for peace. And this is why we need peace institutes. We need a master's degrees in peace resolutions and negotiations. Not security studies, because unfortunately, the security studies and the whole idea of security was colonized by this very paranoid mentality mm. that everybody is your enemy. Yeah. And this creates a very toxic psychological uh, environment. Psychological and sociological environment that it's the perfect opportunity for war. This is what I find most detrimental. And that was the thing that I found most difficult to deal with. Hmm. Because I do not want to live in a world where I fear everybody and I'm always paranoid and I'm always suspecting because you know how there was this idea you you cannot have a rational debate even if with these people oh yeah yeah a rational of debate
0: has, is off the cards and has uh, cards you know, for
1: years I, think, now, yeah. I think um in a democratic society like Romania aspires to be we are to be able to know how many people work in the security apparatus
0: yeah, yeah, like in a democratic society, sorry for to, to interrupt you, but I'm just going to interject that thought. Like mm. in a democratic society, we should be able to debate things. I mean, democracy mm. is like people are used to this weird idea that democracy is just about having elections. You know, like having yes. elections is not bad, but it doesn't really, uh, you know, exhaust by any stretch the definition of democracy. I am for elections and stuff like that, although I find this kind of ramp democracy that we have right now just like a cheap substitute of, of of substantial real democracy but anyway what I want to say here is that democracy is primarily in my opinion in my perception about debating things and how can you debate for example the security status of your country if you don't even know how many people work in the judiciary in the secret service like, how much money is, is goes there and so on and so forth so yeah like I'm totally with you on that
1: and the first question was, did you ever had problems with somebody from the security apparatus? Do you have a personal grudge against it? Uh, are you working for some security agency? I mean, everything was personal and everything was reduced to your uh, you know, own personal experience and you were instantaneously considered an enemy for just asking a question. For me, that was... You know, mind blowing. How are you supposed to have a debate with somebody that, if you ask a question, the first thing that comes to their mind is that you are working for a foreign secret agency, you are somehow an enemy, Mm. or that you had some sort of personal bad experience with the Ceausescu's security apparatus or the nowadays security apparatus, and therefore you are somehow uh, biased and. uh, Nobody is focusing on the problem. Everybody is focusing on you as a potential enemy. And this is the mindset, you know,
0: that makes it impossible. And
1: this is how a security apparatus becomes a a threat, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, I totally, I'm totally with you on that. And, uh, you know, security apparatus is a threat and is not a threat at the same time. Like you have to be able to look at it. dialectically, if you like, in a sense. Because, you know, I I think it's important to to kind of clarify because, uh, you know, I don't want us to come across as some kind of conspiracy theorist or something like that. It's not a conspiracy or anything, even... Remotely close to a conspiracy. It's just that, and you know, Marxism is very helpful in in kind of explaining this because many people, when they see this kind of contradictions that you just explained, they go, they, they fall for all kinds of weird explanations, like you know that the security apparatus is controlled by the Russians, or that all of them are American agents, or that I don't know, the Brussels uh, bureaucracy has done something to them and is now like, and it's, no, no, it's not about that. It's about you know that that the security apparatus is there, together with the entire state structure, to protect people and the interests of one class, one particular class of people. And it's not, it doesn't, you know, no one cares whether it's the Brussels bureaucracy supporting that, or whether it's Washington supporting, or whether it's Russia, or whether it's any other uh, center of power. No, it's just how the state and the construction, the architecture of the state and the political system is designed. So it is against you as an average person, and it is against you in a sense that you are not their first priority in a case of war, and war is what they like to do, because like every, like every institution in a capitalist society, okay, they will work according to capitalist logic. Now, what is the capitalist logic in terms of bureaucratic machinery of the state? Now, you know, I'm not going to turn it into a lecture about Marxism and the state, but I will just say this. Every institution which receives money and leaves off subsidies from the central budget will do its best, regardless of the ideology of it, will do its best in order to sustain the problem that it is created to solve. Mm-hmm. That means if you get if you get like a security institution that doesn't matter whether it's like you know sacred service or something they will have to keep coming up with threats that they will be able to address as an institution in order to survive. You know, in order to, and the same goes, by the way, for all those, you know, uh, like various NGOs, for example, I don't know, that combat racism or, or, exactly. or search for exactly. anti Semitism in Poland and stuff like that. And, you know, I don't deny that there's a lot of problems. There are many problems, okay, with anti Semitism and racism, all kinds of bigotry in Eastern Europe, in Western Europe, like across the world. But, you know, the thing is that some of those NGOs, particularly in Poland, you know, some of them, they come up with increasingly bizarre reports. Okay, about how anti-Semitism is so rampant now in Poland that you know uh, that no one with uh, of Jewish descent can actually freely live here, which is simply not the case. I mean, there is a problem with anti-Semitism, but not to the extent they describe it. Now, why is this? They describe it in that way in order to be able to suck on, you know, the money source that they have been attached to. They have attached themselves to. So, like, there's a whole spectrum of artificial problems which, you know, hype up the society emotionally and that contribute to this disbalancing, you know, like
1: I, everybody I completely yeah. agree. Yes, I completely agree. Now uh, the, the the second thing that I want to address in the second part of this uh, segment is um cutting of gas. I mean, you know that the Russians said, we understand Uh, that you, as Europeans, signed a contract to pay in euros for gas. But, as Sergei Lavrov explained in a recent interview given to India today, he said the following. We established a bank, I think it's called Gazprom Bank, where you can pay in euros, but that will be converted into rubles, and the rubles will get to us, because otherwise what happens? It happens the following. The Russians deliver the gas, the Europeans pay in euros, but then their assets, including those euros paid by the European countries, are being seized as a retaliation for the invasion of Ukraine. And this way, the Russians are bound to deliver gas for free, for money that they are not seeing. So they established this bank to offer European countries the possibility to honor their contracts by continuing to pay in euros, but those euros will be instantaneously converted into rubles and the Russians will get their rubles. Now, of course, I think it was Italy, one of the big countries that said that they are going to obey. And that was contrary to what Ursula von der Leyen uh, suggested, saying that uh, the countries that uh, do such a thing and um, comply with the wishes of the Russian federations are weakening the sanctions imposed on this country by the European Union, I think it was the Serbs, and also the uh, I think Hungary also complied with the wishes, and uh, Romania, of course, said that we are not going to pay uh but but i think romania uh, is a special case because we have a local production and usually now during spring and the summer we don't need as much and um the authorities uh assured the population that for the time being we don't need the russian gas and they are looking for alternative sources and maybe Um, trying to extract more from what we have. I don't know. But the idea is that uh, Romania, let's say, uh, is a little bit, um, how should I say, in a privileged position because we have our own natural resources. Nevertheless, I think 20% of uh, our energy supply in terms of gas was delivered by Russia. And it was delivered through a very interesting system that allowed for, we discussed this in our show, for a lot of speculation. Nevertheless, I think once the winter comes, we will be in trouble if we don't find alternative sources or if we don't prepare by then. What is also interesting to see here is that the Serbs actually are getting the Russian gas through the pipelines that go through Bulgaria, but Bulgaria is not going to to get any gas because they are not willing to pay according to the requirements of the Russian Federation. The Hungarians are also getting their gas from the Balkan. I think it's the Balkan oh, Stream it's or something yeah. like this. It is called the pipeline that goes through Bulgaria, and again the hungarians are getting the gas but not the bulgarians and uh, <clears throat> these are the data now my speculation is the following i think that during summertime the energy supply especially in countries like romania where the weather is warm is not very you know we are not in high demands of gas during the summertime and maybe the romanians are trying to buy time, and also the Bulgarians are trying to somehow uh, think about it for a couple of months, uh, see if they can find alternative solutions, and see what will happen once the weather gets colder, because uh, we might expect that once that happens, you know, (laughs) things are not going to be very easy, and it's not going to be very easy to explain why is it. Why is it that you want to sanction Russia? And you will see how this whole wave of empathy, unfortunately, will collapse in front of the harsh economic reality. And once you see your energy bill going up, and once you see that your government is going to say to you, look, we are going to give you gas from 10 to 10 a.m. till i don't know 5 p.m. or something like this that's going to shorten you know the time when you have uh, energy you will see that people are going to get really really angry because uh, this wave of empathy uh, will will suddenly fade away And the harsh economic reality will come knocking at our doors. And my fear is that, unfortunately, what we are going to see, especially in Romania then is the rise of extreme right and our party and all those elements that I told you that project on Vladimir Putin a kind of man who they aspire to, that they think, you know, Russia is the place. Uh, Some sort of heaven for conservative uh, politics, uh, the heaven for anti-gay, anti-feminist, the heaven for, uh, you know, and the last retreat for, um the people who are uh, very very conservative and you will see the rise of some very very dark forces I I I'm in absence
0: in absence of any meaningful left-wing force That's, yes th-
1: that of should be course, because yeah. the leftists, unfortunately and I think the discussion with Pat Byrne, I urge the viewers to to see it because I think it was wonderful how he explained how Gene sharp who is not a very prominent figure. and Not a lot of people know about him, as they do not know about Edward Bernays. And I think these people are the artisans, you know, of the the current uh, political and media landscape that Mm. we live in. And Gene Sharp came with the idea of actually privatizing the rebellion. He studied a lot Gandhi, and he came up with a way of, privatizing progressive thinking and turning it into something else in instrumentalizing all these very, very um, legitimate causes into ways of being used by the elites, let me explain. So you had, for instance, anti-racism. That was transformed into a competition, first of all, and it was transformed. Into NGOs that were competing for money uh, to fight this uh, to fight racism, but at the same time they were used as tools for regime change and uh, as tools for smear governments that uh, were not in line with the U.S. interests because. Last thing about Saudi Arabia. I know a lot of leftists give this example, but I think it's very important to think about it. I mean, Saudi Arabia three weeks ago just killed more than 80 people. Uh, they beheaded them because they were suspected, I don't know, of uh, treason or something like this, okay? So they're not a champion of human rights. At the same time, nobody discusses and nobody criticizes them, but at the same time, Iran, who do not who is not aligning with the interest, with the economic interest of the uh, uh, United States are severely criticized in terms of them not being feminist enough, of them not being pro-gay enough, of them not being uh, anti-racist enough. So it's so sad to see how feminism, anti-racism, anti-Semitism,
0: Pro LGBT bigotry, yeah.
1: and all human rights are being used in this geopolitical game, and how these all legitimate causes are being used to smear governments who are not economically in line with the interest of the United States.
0: Yeah, but but I and think this
1: with- is what happened, I think, to with the left because in Romania the left, the left is advocating for. Were foreclosing the sky. I, I don't think they 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 even understand that that would immediately lead, or it will be a major you know element leading to World War Three. Do you really want that to happen? How oh, about bucha So okay, let us assume the Ukrainians are right. And it took them three days to discover those bodies in Bucha, and it took them three days to to present it to the public. And it was three days after the Russian left, they said, okay, let's buy this. What do you think will happen once the world War three starts. We will have bochas all over the place, right? So do you such such a simple logical logical conclusion,
0: conclusion, right? Weird
1: idea, Boyan, especially leftists. They have this very weird idea that if NATO starts waging a war against Russia, Russia will suddenly and magically stop, surrender. Mm-hmm. and everything will be done. They okay, have let, this magical things. Yeah, so let me you know, let me let
0: me just tell you. Let me just tell you here because I actually, you know, I noted it down. There's this uh statement made by uh Vladimir Putin and you know, it speaks to exactly what you're talking about right now. Uh and and this statement was delivered shortly after this well, I guess we should call it a terrorist attack on the Transnistrian territory occurred. Uh, at the hands of the Ukrainians, and there seems to be a consensus about that right now. And uh, you know, actually, uh, there are reports that it continues. But I want to focus on this because you, you you said that the leftists imagine that then you know I don't know Vladimir Putin and the Russian bureaucracy and the Russian state they're going to give in and they're going to I don't know uh, somehow crawl uh, on their knees or or crawl yeah, you know to the to the West and and ask them for forgiveness or something like that. Well, n- not exactly. Here's where Vladimir Putin said. Uh, If someone from outside decides to intervene in the current events and create unacceptable strategic threats to us, they should know that our response to those oncoming blows will be swift and lightning fast. We have everything we need to succeed. We have tools that no one else can boast about. We're not going to brag about them, though, if the need arises, we will use them, and we will use them immediately and full force. Thank you. Goodbye. That's that's like, so n- now you can go on forever singing your, your song about how if we, you know, if we confront Putin enough, then he will finally, you know, back down. Well, doesn't seem like. And on top of everything, there's this weird perception in, you know, on the left and on the right, across the spectrum, like, but pretty much... You know, among all those people, among all those public figures that somehow think Russia and the Russians are subhuman and they are stupid and and somehow uh, 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 despisable, basically, uh, that you know the Russians are bluffing. And so far, the events have proved that Russians can do everything, but they're not really bluffing. You know, they threatened with war, and the war occurred. So perhaps we should try and you know just. Take them a little more seriously, because, you know, there are many people out there who, uh, you know, they even try to confront me every once in a while. Like now, not as often because I'm off Facebook. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, they, they would come and say, oh, but Boyan, look, I don't think Ukraine is really such a major threat, even in NATO. Ukraine in NATO is such a major threat to Ru- uh, to Russian national security. And, you know, my response has always been, uh, look, it doesn't really matter what you think. I mean, it matters like in terms of the discussion that we might have. But in, 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 in politics, in international politics, what you think about Ukraine in NATO does not matter. You know what matters? What Vladimir Putin thinks about Ukraine in NATO. That's what matters. And if you keep just, you know, repeating this that, yo, well, we don't think it's a threat. You know, Vladimir Putin is crazy. Everything that's happening is like absolutely unhinged and stupid and, and is only based on some paranoid uh, thoughts that, you know, the leader of Russia might have. You're not getting very far. Like you're just going to, you know, stay there, repeating that, while world is going to, you know, keep turning, and while you the war keeps unfolding, and you know, like it's it's your choice. It's your choice whether you want to live in the world of your fantasy and projection, or whether you want to live in the world where things that happen, where, where, where things that matter, actually are taken into consideration. So that's yes, that's, and your own that's individual exactly
1: choice. what Mersheimer said. That it doesn't matter what we think; it matters what the Russian Federation thinks. And mm-hmm. if they think that what's happened, what was happening in Ukraine, is an existential threat to them, well, they are they will act accordingly. But you know what my fear is that you have these people who are living in a fantasy world criticizing russia but unfortunately and especially with the rise of our you have those who fantasize also about russia but in a world they are fascinated by it they are fascinated by by they have a different fantasy they have a different perfect (laughs) fantasy And they are fascinated with some sort of leader, with this ultimate man that is Vladimir Putin riding on a bear, the Russian bear, all these representations and fantasies. And unfortunately, this leads to another type of you know fascism delusion <laughs> delusion And that, delusions you yeah. know and and this is this is very this it, is wild and dangerous but this is and this
0: is i think uh, also speaks to the question of a lack of rational debate and how can you have a rational debate in politics when you have no left wing like when you have no left wing voice, which would stand for, you know, rational argumentation, stuff like that. And what you're getting right now, what you're describing with this idealization of Putin against, you know, the demonization, like, you know, Putin can either be great and fantastic and like, you know, the best leader that the history of humanity has known, or it can be the the, the biggest evil, you know, And and by the way, Zeta. by the way. Satan and all the rest of it. And at the same time, you have this uh, this other dimension of that discourse. On the one hand, he's a clumsy leader with a clumsy army that keeps losing, that kept that has been, you know, losing for the last, I don't know, two months or something like that, and they still haven't lost completely, who is like, who has Alzheimer's and who has had like bad COVID and who is paranoid and who is a weak leader, who is only, you know, terrorizing his own population through the security apparatus in a totalitarian manner. And on the other hand, you have Putin, who is so able that he's, through Facebook memes, he's able to project his will over onto the American mindset and make them elect a president that he like. You know, I mean, it just the whole, the whole picture is so contradictory that to any thinking person, you know, it appears to be a complete and utter nonsense. But of course, like in order to be able to have this kind of voice heard in the public uh, arena, you need a strong, uh, solid, uh, consistent leftist voice. Right, and and uh, we don't have that. So of course you're gonna okay. get this. You're gonna keep getting this this thing like those those people you know that, that that form that part of the public opinion in Romania who idolize Putin for all the wrong reasons. By the way, you know they 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 get this weird mixture in their head. That's my interpretation. Okay, I mean I haven't really mm-hmm. spoken to them, uh, but uh, my feeling is that what they're doing is. They see someone who's an able leader, who's able to exercise some kind of sovereignty, and who's even able to exercise, you know, sovereignty beyond its own borders in a sense that, you know, to now invaded Ukraine, right? So they see that and they they don't they don't know what to attach it to because there's so little reporting on what's actually happening or what has been happening in Russia over the last two decades. So the only thing that are, is being reported and is being hyped up in the uh, in the Western media is that you know a ban on gay pride parades. Uh, I don't know uh, some all kinds of acts of discrimination against uh, sexual minorities or other minorities. I don't know like you know the, the kind of institutionalized bigotry. That occurs every every once in a while in Russia and in other countries as well, by the way, uh, not least in Poland. So uh, it's you know they they link those two factors because they don't have anything else available. And if you had anyone in the public who would be able to tackle this problem and explain that look, this and this and this are a certain achi- are certain achievements of the you know whatever of the, the the administration of Vladimir Putin, and those and that and this uh ele- those and these elements are are his uh you know or are, are, are his failures you know if you were able to have a rational debate about you know Russia or anything else for that matter then things would be different but since you know w- we are not able to have this debate because the the basic factor is absent which is like rational leftist voice that should be tackling those issues in the way that i just explained then we're, we're, we're just going to be, you know, those people that you explained, followers of our and other, you know, right wing. Par- for example, there is this party called Revival in Bulgaria, which is super yeah. pro-Russian and stuff like that. And, you know, they, they of course, gather a lot of people around them. But those people that are gathered around them, they 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 have some kind of pro-Russian intuition, which is part of the Bulgarian culture historically and stuff like that. They don't want to be the client state uh, or, or the obedient, you know, pawn of, of NATO and West, you know, they've got the, the right instincts, perhaps, but they cling to a wrong party. They cling to a wrong organization, which is just exploiting those interests or those, not not interests, but those intuitions in the Bulgarian society. Okay. And is exploiting this, this wreckage that uh, you, you know uh, th- that the public opinion has been brought to in Bulgaria over the course of, of of the transition to capitalism. They're just exploiting it in order to score some points. They're, they're just doing that. And when you read their program, no one in their right mind, should support them because in their program, there is not only nothing to actually address the urge, the most urgent problems of the Bulgarian society, but there is everything to actually deepen those problems. Because they are, you know, so, but, but again, like when you have a society and a public opinion where no one reads the programs of the party, where everybody is just brought, you know, to the level of of, of just, you know, following their basic political instincts without, you know, thinking about it, well, there you have it. That, that that's what it's gonna look like. Yes,
1: yes, and, and my fear is that once the economic, you know, reality is gonna come knocking on our doors, you're going to see these people, you know, rise and actually take yeah. power. This is my yeah. fear. Yeah. So oblique yeah. perspective from Romania. Let yeah. us hope that what we offered here is this an attempt for a calm and rational perspective on what's happening right now in the political arena in this uh, region and uh, I hope you find it interesting and to the extent that you can go to our patreon page patreon.com the barricade make a monthly subscription because this is the best way to support independent journalism and I think we have 956 subscribers please help us reach a list 1000 by the end of the month it will be great to have it thank you so much stay healthy keep fighting and we'll see you in our next segment
0: thanks